Amen. There are a lot of laws in the Old Testament. There are 613 commandments in the Torah. 248 are positive, saying you must do these things. 365 are negative. One thing for every day of the year not to do. And so this scribe, who would have been an expert, we'll talk about that more in a minute, an expert in these things, he comes with a great question today. Of all those things that you're commanded to do, what's the most important? Can you boil it down for me instead of all of these 613 laws? And Jesus gives him quite the answer. But before we dive into it, let me remind you where we are. It's been a few months since we've been in the Gospel of Mark series, so let me catch you up to the scene. We're actually in Passion Week and what we just read. On Sunday, Jesus would have rode in on a donkey to great fanfare, and a lot of folks in the city thought, our Messiah has come. He activated a lot of prophecies that really seemed like this was the guy. He went straight to the temple, cleaned that thing out, if you recall, turning over tables. And then over a series of days, the high priests come to him and say, who, thinks, who do you think you are? Why did you think you could mess up our temple this way? And then the Pharisees came to him and asked a question about taxes and Caesar. And the Sadducees came to him and asked a question about the resurrection and marriage, the marriage and the afterlife. And he just keeps running circles around them. And because he does, they've now plotted to kill them. But there's one more question that he gets today. This is the crescendo, the crescendo of Jesus in the temple being questions, being questioned. And it ends up getting us back to the central question of this book. The central question of the Gospel of Mark is this. Who is Jesus? And once you've decided on that, what are you going to do about it? Once you've decided who he is, if he says who he is, what are you going to do in terms of following him? And that's, uh, in part, what we really dive into today. So let's go line by line like we do. One other quick note before we start. You've maybe noticed here, our style of preaching is we go through the text, we figure out what it means, and then at the end we say, and here's some things that might mean about how you live this week. You'll be better served if we do that as we go. So we're going to talk about some verses and what that means for life the entire time. So that's what we're going to do together. Here we go. Verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard Jesus and the, uh, and the Pharisees, Sadducees, disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, the scribe asked him, What commandment is most important of all? Let's talk about the scribe for a minute. He would have been a religious scholar, a lawyer. He would have known... All 613 of those laws I mentioned a minute ago. But further, he would have known what the Jews called the Mishnah. It's about 1,500 more commandments. Here's what the scribes did. They tried to put definitions on the biblical commands. So, for example, get the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. But then debates would rise up. What's that mean? How far can we walk? While we walk, can we pick fruit from a tree? What can we do? And the scribes come together to say, of these 613 commands in the Torah, we've got about 1,500 others that we're going to add on to that to be the definition of being a good law-keeping Jew. And so that's who the scribe was, an expert in the law. And so that does bring up an important question, I think, for a, for a follower of Yahweh, the true God. Can you tell me the most important one? Like, if, if I follow that one, I'll probably get all the other ones right. Can you boil this down for me? What's the most important? What's the center of how I, sh how I should be living? Maybe that's a good question for you today. What's the center of how I love my God, serve my God? What's the most important thing for me to do or not do? And that's the question the scribe asks. Here's what Jesus says in verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What Jesus quotes here is from Deuteronomy 6. We read it at the beginning of the service. It's known as the Great Shema. And every Jew growing up would have known it to, the, to this extent. I suspect, if I said to you, even if you've only been going here a little while, uh, the Beechwood Creed is, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. I think you guys would be able to say, maker of heaven and earth, right? You've heard it that many times. So what Jesus is quoting here is super common. They would have learned it growing up, and it's a very common command. If you would be willing, I'd love to go read that together. If you want to turn over with me to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, I'm going to break this down. He says it's the most important commandment. Maybe we should give it some attention today. If it's in uh, your device, it's Deuteronomy 6. We're coming back to Mark, so maybe hold your place. But let's head over to Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4, and read the fullness of what Jesus says is the, is the greatest commandment. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, that word hear doesn't just mean listen to the words. It means hear and obey. Maybe imagine it from a parental perspective when you say, listen to me, young man. You're not saying just hear the words. You're saying do what I'm about to tell you to do. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is revolutionary. Going back ancient Persia, ancient Sumer, there, there are no one God people groups. The whole world has been polytheistic. This is a revolutionary thing to say that the Lord, our God, the, the, the true God, there is one and there's none like him. And now before we get to verse 5, this, is a, this actually is revolutionary for the ancient world. What does that one God want? You would assume obedience. You would assume deference, sacrifices, offerings, something. Because that's what the ancient gods of Egypt wanted. That's what Ra wanted. That's what the ancient gods of Sumer wanted. They wanted your fealty. What does this one God want? Verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of this commandment. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. We've marked before in other sermons, the Jewish people did a lot of these things. They would wear the, the Shema in different parts of their body. This was a a major part of their culture, and everyone would have known what Jesus was quoting here. So let's break it down. What is he telling us is the greatest commandment? Well, I already told you about the word here. Let's go to number two. He says, the Lord is one, this unique one God who wants love, not just obedience or submission. And so how do we love him? It's, we, we love him in these three ways. First, heart. In the American context, we tend to think of the heart as a romantic word. That is not what is indicated here. The word for heart here is your thinking and your feeling. There's other parts of the scripture where the word, that word is translated the well. Where, what's the well in you? Where do you pull from who you are and what you do? He says here, love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with how you think, what you think about, how you feel, and where your, where your feelings come from, the well of your heart. Love him with how you think and what you think. Two, love the Lord your God with all your soul. That word in the Hebrew is nephesh. It means energy. Love the Lord your God 
with whatever drives you. I'd ask maybe even if you'd consider that right now. What drives you to get up? What drives you to go to work? What drives you forward to make plans in the future? Because the command here is love the Lord your God with your thinking and feeling, but then also love the Lord your God with your soul. Whatever drives you forward to keep doing whatever it is you're doing. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and third was might. It certainly means here your physical strength, but the word more means what you do with your body. This responds to, I think, a fairly uh, damaging doctrine that's come up in the church the last century or so. There's been a, a teaching that humanity is a duality, maybe even a sometimes a, a trichotomy, that there's our our bodies, but then there's our, our souls or maybe our hearts and feelings, but they're all separate. And this is just an unfortunate fleshly casing I have to travel around with, but I'm really a soul that has a body, and it's led us to make really even neglecting the theology of the body, that this is a, a really good gift. But living in an integrated way where we use the body to love our God, it makes everything we do more meaningful. We've primarily been taught on what not to do with our body. That's what we worship. And those are, that's how we worship. And that's good, by the way, being taught what not to do with your body. Man, this, this gives us so much more meaning that when you've been down to pick up that baby, you've used your body. When you've gone to work and you've worked hard and there's sweat coming off of your brow, those of you that work hard, you've used your body and it can be an act of worship. Not just what we think and feel, not just what drives us forward, but how we use our bodies all in worship to God, living as a fully integrated person. That's what Jesus quotes here. We're going to talk about all those a little bit later. Let's go back to Mark for now. Going back to the going back to Mark, you might notice something. Jesus did not quote directly heart, soul, and might. He said heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so let's use that that example again of the Beachwood Creed. If we just came in and randomly changed it one week and it said uh, the Beachwood Creed is, well, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things seen and unseen. I think you guys would notice, right? You would go, that's not right. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Well, the same way that they had heard this Shema uh, constantly recited, when Jesus added in mind, everybody would have noticed. Certainly that scribe would have noticed who knows the law. So there's a call here to worship with heart, soul, and might, but Jesus brings in mind. It means intellect. I want to talk about that one for us really quickly. Another set of doctrinal distinctions that have come up in the Western church in the last hundred years or so that I think was damaging. That first thing that was damaging is that we think our bodies are separate than our souls when we're really integrated. But we've had some problems in how we think about the mind in the Western church the last hundred years. Maybe some of you grew up with it. I grew up with this a little bit. But I've, I've heard from a pulpit someone say, Got to, got to be careful about these guys going off to seminary. They're going to educate the Holy Spirit right out of them. I heard those words. And there was an idea here that and if you can learn too much. If you get a little overeducated, that you are going to get maybe too big for your britches. You're going to educate the feelings of the Holy Spirit right out of you. That is not our tradition historically. If you look through history, it is Christian people who figured out agriculture, biology, Astronomy. We are the weird where architecture began and design began. It's the Christian church that was the powerhouse intellect 
for centuries. And we've had this movement in the West, anti-intellectual just a little bit. And Jesus says here, hey, part, part of your worship is what you do with your mind and how you develop it. Now, we've had an, another problem in the church. Uh, this is more modern. I'd say last 20 years. Or it's not anti-intellectual. It's just super pro-emotional. Where uh, there are churches that don't call these services. They'll call it their worship experience. And the surveys they send out to their people to try to measure their worship experience is whether or not people felt things, if there were feelings. But again, hear me say, we are not just a body with thoughts or a body with feelings. All of these things, according to our scriptures, are together. All of them are worship. There are some of us, I could name you in the room, you are, your affections for the Lord are stirred up intellectually. When you learn something new about how brilliant this Bible is, when you figure out the design of the, of the world, you look at it and your affections grow. The, the, the Lord is good. Man. This is incredible. I learned something. And some of us should focus on the reality that he is also so generous, so good. We enjoy him and enjoy, enjoy his presence, not just, the, not just the intellectual learning, but also the emotional response to a good father who gives good gifts. And I'll admit for some of you, some of you more naturally experience the affection for your God through emotion. It's, it's a song that hits at the right time. And it's, I'm not denigrating that. I am saying we need both. Hey, you high intellect folks, man, there's some feelings and affections for our God. And you high feeler folks, man, there's some incredible things to learn about our God. We need both. We're not a heart versus mind faith. We are an integrated, full lover of God with our heart, soul, strength, mind, everything in worship and in subjection to Him. So here's that, that call. Love the Lord by getting to know Him. Feel for your God by learning more about your God. This is often how love works. The more you get to know somebody, the more affection you feel for Him. So that or them. So in our scriptures, we can learn more about Learn more about our God, and that will build our affection. So Jesus adds that mind. We love the Lord our God. So what's the greatest commandment? With our heart, the things I think about, the things I feel, they are primarily driven on wanting to please my God, what I dwell on. Well, love the Lord your God with all your soul. What gets you up in the morning? What drives you forward? What's your energy? For some of us, it's, it's some really, really trivial things. Some of us are just driven by the next paycheck, by the next vacation. He's asking, hey, don't live for those things. Be driven by seeing the kingdom go, go forward. Be driven by getting to know your God, your energy, your physical strength. And now cultivate the mind as an act of worship. I thought of a, a distinction I think that happens in here sometimes. Listen, I... Uh, <laughs> Some of your faces during songs are very blank. Like you're just, you're, you're not really experiencing uh, anything through the music. And that's, listen, I'm not criticizing you for that. Some of you are really expressive. And you really are worshiping through music. Both things, I'm just going to call them fine. But I know if I were sitting out there, and I'm not a particularly emotional guy, I know that this, I know this would happen from time to time if you would engage your mind on what we're singing. Just uh, a good example. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and a perfect plea. It's a great high priest. His name is love, and he ever lives and pleads for me. While you guys sing that for the next four minutes, I could just dwell on that. That there's a throne in heaven 
a throne where judgment is handed out, and I stand guilty before that throne. But man, I've got a really, really good representative. And he's ever pleading for me, and he will not stop. He will bring me through. And so, whatever side you're on, you're more emotional, you're more intellectual, here's what I'm saying. We need each other, and let's develop both because we are one integrated person with our heart, soul, mind, strength, all to worship the king together, expressing love for him. Now, that could be enough for today. We could just ask some questions and challenge ourselves. Am I loving the Lord my God with what I think about, with what I feel, what I think, excuse me, what I think, feel, what I do with my body and what, uh, how I'm cultivating my mind? But Jesus answered the question the scribe gave him, and he didn't stop. He decided, no one asked Jesus, but he decided, I'm going to give you some more. And so, let's go back to verse 31, because Jesus didn't stop with the greatest command. Verse 31, the second greatest commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Stop right there for one second. I think some of you could, could hear me say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you go, and the Lord's been so good to me, so generous. That, that sounds like it could be easy even. If I would give some discipline to it, I could, I could love the Lord my God. People, on the other hand, that's going to be harder. Some of you think, loving people, that's, that's going to be a challenge. So while that's true, listen, loving people is hard. It's a good exercise to see where Jesus is quoting from again. So he quoted from Deuteronomy 6 when he says to us, love your neighbor as yourself. It's good to go find out what might that look like from where he is quoting. So if you are brave enough to venture to Leviticus, I'm sure you were all reading there this morning. Leviticus chapter 19. We're coming back to Mark in a minute. This is the passage that Jesus is quoting from. You'll see the quote at the end of this passage. In Leviticus 19, verses 13 through 17, this is what it looks like to love your neighbor. Remember this, in the Luke account of this discussion, the scribe asked the question, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, and the response was, well, who's my neighbor? Will you, will you limit this for me? As we know from that story, there wasn't a limit on the neighbor. So let's see what it looks like in Leviticus 19 to love your neighbor. 19, verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him, the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Verse 15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor, so don't prefer the poor, or defer to the great, not preferring the rich. But in righteousness or fairness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but, here's where Jesus quoted, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That scribe in the Luke account of this, he wanted to limit what it means, but we know it, it's not limited, so I want to walk through here. It, it, of these verses, the categories of people that were called to love and how we're called to love them. You, you saw some of those. Don't, some of it was obvious. Don't slander. Don't rob. 
Don't make fun of the person who can't hear by cursing them. And don't trip the blind person by putting something in front of them. Let's look through these categories. Number one category is your actual neighbor. We often overlook that this actually does mean the people you live close to. That's the person across the road. It's the person next to you. It's the people on your street. It certainly does mean more than that. It means the people you interact with regularly at the gym, those who have other, their kids in the soccer league and their kids in the baseball league that you're a part of. It certainly means those you work with and you're part of parent-teacher associations. The people you're around, you're called to love your neighbor. But specifically, a good practice here, it actually does mean the people around you. Just a couple quick facts here on some, some social science that I've been interested in the last 10 years or so because we are living culturally in a place where we have less connectivity to our neighbors, people on our streets, than we ever had. There's a, a book I read years ago. I think it's it's an important piece of social science. It's not, uh, it's not from a Christian. It's called Bowling Alone. And he covers how we are the most isolated people, that, and more isolated people than probably have ever existed when it comes to isolating ourselves in our home. He talked about it in... Uh, in terms of even our physical architecture has changed over the years to isolate us from our neighbors. Example was the attached garage. This idea being, instead of having to get out of your car and at least be seen by your neighbors, we can open the door, drive in, close that thing, go inside the house, and then this is another piece of architectural history in the United States. Over the last 50 years, the share of the home that was front porch versus back porch has switched. We used to hang out on the front porch and talk to our neighbors as they walked by or as they were walking their dog and interact with people in our neighborhood. Now the front porches have gotten super small and the back porch has gotten super big so that you can go inside your attached garage, go in and go out the back, so, and you have a giant privacy fence so you never have to talk to anybody. <laughs> or self-checkout. I remember, it's actually, it's funny, one of my neighbors as a kid is here today and it was not weird for us to go knock on your neighbor's door and ask for a cup of sugar. It wasn't weird to hear a knock on the door. Actually, I remember when there was a knock on the door when I was a kid, it was, oh cool, who's here? Some of you have security systems so advanced. A knock on the door is a national security emergency. You got cameras everywhere. Who is here? Who knows, who knows they're not here? Why is there people here? We don't, that's where we are. Admittedly, that's what we're doing now as neighbors. And all, all I'm telling you is, that's not what we're called to. I'm not called to constant fear of our neighbor, nervousness around our neighbor. I'm actually so intrigued about what Doug and Marley, mom and dad, are doing in this project of moving in to the same space, aging well together, and turning that home into an embassy of the kingdom of God to Evergreen Street, to Dayton Drive. I can't wait to see what that looks like, because I think I might want to model it. What does it look like to be an embassy to Glaze Springs Court? That's my road. What's it look like to be a good Neighbor, And so I, I am asking you, challenging you, you think about the people you're close to, that you interact with, by close to, I mean physically, because you might not know their names, but that you interact with regularly, that you would be intentional on serving and loving and hosting those that are close by. I, I would hope this would be true of the Christian household, that people in your neighborhood know that you disappear on Sunday mornings for a couple hours, and maybe you're that, you're that church person, but that... The Christian household on each street would be the one that's a blast. Man, that's the one where there's, there's people coming over there all the time. They cook out in the front yard instead of the backyard. They talk when, they're, they talk when I walk, walk in my dog. They're so friendly. They, be the people 
that I've, I've not only done this twice, I know I'm hypocritical, but I've lived in my own house 13, 14 years, and twice a new person would move in, and I would not bake cookies, I'd go buy cookies and put a gospel track in a bag and just put the cookies in there and just walk over and say, hey, Corey, I live right there. You know, if, well, since, you're, since you're new, if I can help, you know, just, just let me know. If, you, if someone moves in I, to your neighborhood, would you take 10 minutes and do that and be a good neighbor? Hosting people on purpose? I, I would challenge this one. Some of you are so good at this. You are out in your community through Little League or you're working with your school system. Let's get out there. Let's not just cloister ourselves in this space and then in our homes. Let's get out there. With one caveat, I understand a lot of you have small kids, and you should be cautious about who you let into your space. I understand that. Don't hear me challenging you to do something uh, that's, that's risky. But I am saying we, we, have tend to, we tend to adopt the culture we're in, and the culture in America says, get in your house and stay there and don't interact with people. So let's, let's call something different. Let's love our neighbor, the ones that are actually in our neighborhood, the people that we're around. Two. This also calls us not to just love those who are physically close, but those across category spectrums. So it had the, uh, the, the hired worker, that, so the person who has a boss um, and has to be paid by them, like maybe the contractor. It had the deaf, it had the blind, you had the poor and the rich. There was contrast of the worker versus the person who, uh, who owns the business maybe, or the person who is uh, partial to the poor, partial to the rich. The call here is, Love people from every spectrum. Love everybody across the different categories. And how do you do that? Well, don't do injustice to them. Don't slander them. Hear me say that. There's category spectrums of people that some of you might be very comfortable saying very bad things about. We don't take advantage of any of those category spectrums because, well, they're in that category of people, so I'm going to say this about them, and I will take advantage of them. I know this is true of me. So I, work with a, I work in the public a lot, so I have to interact with a lot of different people. And what I find is, when I'm really hitting it off with somebody, I realize, oh, they're a lot like me. I like you because I really like me. And so I'm getting along with you because we're so similar. It's easy to love people who are like us. We're called to something higher and better, to love those who aren't like us. And that can mean a lot of things. That can mean ethnic prejudice. It can mean income prejudice. I've said to you from this pulpit, one of the people I'm most uncomfortable around is like super wealthy people because I feel like I have nothing in common with them. But you gotta find something. Like I, I gotta find something. It's a, it's a good exercise to think about our biases, about just temperaments. There are certain temperaments, personalities, I don't enjoy. There are certain temperaments, or uh, maybe, uh, let me see, what's another good category I've heard people denigrate? People have a certain kind of job. And so I, don't, I know I don't like that person because they have that kind of job. Love people. Here's what the command is. Love people across the categories. Don't exclude somebody because they fit into a category. That's a person. Just a person. Made in the image of God, just like you are. So we love our neighbor, those who are close to us. We love people across categories. And then the last one, verses 17 through 18, that's the hard one. Love your enemies. He says there, don't hold a grudge. Don't take vengeance. Love the people. This, is my, this might be one of the hardest commandments. The person who wronged you. The person who hurt you. The people you see in the world as the problem. Love them. 
I'm not telling you I do that perfectly. I'm telling, recall, I'm telling you, Jesus says here, the second most, command, most important commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love those close to you. Love people across spectrums. Love those that are even your enemies. The life of following Jesus is a life of loving God and by extension, loving those who bear his image, which are our neighbors. Let's come out of Leviticus and go back to verse 32. We're coming towards the end of our text here. So Jesus has answered his question. Here's the most important things. Love the Lord your God with your mind, your soul, your heart, your strength. And number two, you didn't even ask me, but I'll add it as a bonus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 32. The scribe said to Jesus, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, that God is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is the one question I'll ask you that I want you to answer out loud. Does anyone remember where Jesus is having this discussion? In the temple. right? So he's been having these discussions about resurrection and Caesar and taxes and his own authority. He's been having it in the temple. And so this scribe says in the temple where there's a holy place and holy of holies and all the sacrificial systems and the stuff that made up religious life for centuries. And he looks at Jesus in the face and says, what you just said, loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor, it's much more than all of this. All this ornate system of sacrifices and offerings and priests, that right there, love God, love people, it's much more. It's a very provocative thing to say in that temple. It's the kind of thing that's going to get you killed. These folks don't want to hear that just that command is better than their entire system and structure of their faith. The scribe is saying internal love for God and external love for neighbor, it's more than the system they had been in. The scribe actually seems to get it. He seems to get that if Jesus is who he claims to be, if Jesus is the promised Messiah, the entire system he's, he's walking around in is obsolete. They don't need it anymore. If Jesus has come, and again, those are dangerous words where he stands. And so verse 34, Jesus says, responds to him this way. And when Jesus saw that the scribe answered wisely, Jesus said to the scribe, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. There's, there's something profound, maybe fearful, in the response from Jesus. This guy seems to get it, seems to intellectually understand that if what you're saying is true, we don't need this temple and sacrifices if you are who you say you are. But Jesus doesn't say you're in the kingdom of God. He says you're not far from it. There is something still to do, not just to acknowledge that you are who you say you are, but the thing to do is now follow after the, there's something he missed. You're just saying what's true. You're not doing what's true. And I don't want that to be true of any of us. That we're close. We think all the right things. But that, that, real, that real sign that we're truly following Jesus is loving our God and loving our neighbor. Now, before we get into the actual section here, where I'm going to challenge you on some things. Another profound thing happened in that text. And I don't think this is an aside. I, I don't think I'm just giving you some Bible trivia. I'm, I'm almost positive this is connected for a reason. I suspect in this room 
some of you now feel burdened. You, you think, this is, man, all that's pretty hard. It's, it's hard for my heart and my feelings to be motivated first by godly things. It's hard for my thinking to be on godly things and not what the world bombards me with. It's hard to love the Lord with my, with my strength and my health. It's hard to love the Lord with my mind when there's so much going on in the world. And man, to love people, man, that's hard. And so I, just as much as in, a, in about 10 minutes we're going to sing, Lord, I need you. I need you to, if these are going to happen, if I'm going to love the Lord my God, if I'm going to love my neighbor, I'm going to need you to do that in me because I can't. The same, the same way we're going to sing that, I think there's something here for us to, to find the power to do that. Here's why. That last sentence, no one dared him ask any more questions, is quite profound. Remember that this is leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and sacrifice, and there is an Old Testament picture that has been activated here. In the old Passover, in Passover, the lambs for sacrifice, for slaughter, would be delivered to the temple to be examined. For several days, the high priests and maybe the Pharisees, Sadducees, the religious leaders, they would poke and prod and examine and make sure that this lamb really is worthy to be sacrificed for the sins of the people for that year. Jesus delivered himself to the temple a lamb to slaughter, and stood in front for several days of the high priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes, and they poked and they prodded and they examined. And what they find at the end is, he's worthy. He really is the Passover lamb. They might not have known it intellectually, but we're seeing it now. He really is the worthy one. He's been examined and he's been proven true. And so if he is the one that was worthy, if he did take your sin on the cross, well, now you get to live in the righteousness that he's given you. And from the power and the strength of the righteousness he's given you in the cross is resurrection. Now, in that, we can go do these things. We can go love the Lord our God and love our neighbor from the strength that he's given us in his worthiness. So then final for me is just three points. This won't take too long. I just want to do a heart check. Not to burden you. If you have what you need, the resources of redemption, if you are in Christ Jesus today, you have what you need to do these things. So I just want ask you some questions as a heart checkup. Do you love the Lord your God or will you love the Lord your God with your heart and mind, your feelings and what you think about? Can I ask you what gets your emotions? What gets you most excited? Is it, is it a vacation? Is it something, something worldly? Does it get you excited more when you happen to see one of your, one, one of your kids being discipled well. I, I, I love getting texts from Caleb. He asks Bible questions. He's asking for resources. That gets my feelings. Oh, man, my, my boy. He, he wants to grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I, that'll get me excited when, when he does that. I'm going to ask you, what gets your emotions? What gets you the most angry? Is it something worldly? Or is it when you, when maybe you see the, uh, this is some legitimate anger, you, you see uh, images of, of your God. You see biblical things being uh, diminished, made fun of. Does that, does that get you angry? Or are you more angry, more zealous for your own honor? What gets you angry? Because I, I can tell you this. There are very interested people, powerful folks in the world that know anger will drive you. And they will send you so much angry stuff. 
They want you angry. They're just sending it to your screen to keep you rageful. But what? Are, they, are you going to let them tell you what to be angry about? Or will we refine our emotions through the Holy Spirit to get angry about the right things? What are you most grateful for? Is it our salvation, our redemption, adoption to the family of God that Jesus is working in us, the Holy Spirit is working in us to make us more in his image? Are you more grateful for that or are you more grateful for something that is a worldly value? Just asking you to ask yourself that question. What gets my feelings? What do I dwell on? Do I dwell on biblical things or am I dwelling on lots of other things? Number two, what gets your energy? Love the Lord your God in your heart and mind, but love the Lord with your whole soul. That word means energy. Can you ask yourself that question? What gets most of your energy? Is it work for the sake of just making money? Not work for caring for your family. That is a good, godly thing. Take care of your family. But is it work just because you, you want the extra toys? You want the extra experience? There's some of folks, some folks in the room, might be driven by their entertainments and their leisure. You get up and go just so you can get to the spot where you don't have to do anything. That's your driving force. Young people in the room hear me hear this one. A lot of folks your age, you are driven by popularity and notoriety. You are driven by how many people click the button on the app to tell you that you are important. Are you driven by any of those things or are we driven by the, the good things God's given us? Are driven by making our marriage stronger, by raising godly kids, by being made more the image of Christ through prioritizing prayer and time in the word. What gets your energy? I'd love for you to ask that question of yourself today. Third, so will you love the Lord your God with your heart and mind, with your soul, your energy? And then finally, will you love the Lord your God with your strength, your body? Relax here. I'm not about to hit a hobby horse of mine. I, I do want to challenge this, though, because it's, it's not often taught. I know it wasn't taught in, in my background. There's an often neglected theology of our body and our health. Our health is a very, very good gift. You will find that out as soon as you stop being healthy. You will take for granted, we will take for granted our healthy bodies up until the moment they stop being healthy and we will realize that it was awesome to be healthy. I just want to toss out here that you would ask yourself, do I love the Lord my God with what I do with my body, with how I respond to stress, with how I use food, with how how much I move around. I'm not don't don't try. To, I'm not telling you to be like me. Don't adopt my my discipline. I'm tell, I'm just asking you, do you love the Lord your God by saying, Lord, this is good. Thanks for making me healthy, and I want to honor that by making good decisions with my body. I don't want to freak anybody out, but guys, we are we are getting older, right? Let's age well together, and let's age well together to the glory of God. I affirm in you, I don't want to say your names and embarrass you, but affirm several of you over the last few years have made a decision to get healthy, and you've maintained it. I'm sure for all of us there's a, a level of vanity in those operations as well, and those motivations as well, but it's good to go be healthy. Here's what I know. Uh, today, at 36, I want to go play volleyball for several hours with you, and then when I'm 66, I want to do it again. If the Lord will, will tarry and we all stick together, I want to go keep doing that. And so... Love the Lord your God with your heart and mind, what you think and feel, with your energy, but taking good care of, our, of ourselves is an act of worship. Two, will you love your neighbor as yourself? 
already given you some ideas there. To invite, host, serve those closest to you. Will you be willing to stop speaking evil and slander of folks? Searching your own heart for prejudices and biases for how you feel justified for feeling negative things about people made in the image of God. And then that very, very hard one. Will you love your enemy? Will you forgive, let go of bitterness? Get this one. Even pray for your enemy's good by praying, if, if they were wrong, praying for their repentance that they would be reconciled to God through their repentance. That is the heavy command today. Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, knowing all the time that the one who kept the law perfectly, the one who did all of that, Jesus, is working in us, and we have everything we need to meet that command. As the band comes up, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing the song that we need if we're going to go out those doors in love like that. Love the Lord our God and our enemies. Excuse me, love the Lord our God and our neighbors. We're going to sing, Lord, I need you. Let's pray together.